welcome to the eighth, uh, this time I'm sure it's the eighth episode of uh, Curse With Good Ideas, the podcast where we uh, talk about pretty much everything from uh, memes and radio and new media and uh, places that people don't normally talk about. And today it's a small team, a small summer uh, edition of the podcast. Uh, so it's just me and Dino uh, as hosts and we have a guest. He's Paul Farrelly, um, and he's an academic, researcher, author, consultant, uh, based in Canberra, right? That's right, yeah. And, um, well, I just, uh, I think I followed you on Twitter for quite a while, maybe years, because you, uh, I guess I found you through China-related content on Twitter. And uh, then, uh, I think when you happened to be in Taipei, I, I saw you post something about Taipei and Taiwan on Twitter, so I just got in touch, and we met in Taipei, so it was, uh, it was pretty delightful to talk to you about your research i didn't really know uh, much about it besides what you posted on twitter so uh that was maybe a month ago and uh that's that's the story of this uh of this episode i guess uh which is uh another another twitter meeting and then uh that happened in real life yeah for and, sure uh, yeah we got to talk about a little bit of what you're doing but uh it wasn't enough because we just talked for maybe an hour or something so i thought uh, that was a pretty good occasion to to do a podcast episode well thanks for the introduction uh it's really good to be here uh this is my first podcast so I'll, oh, I'll <laughs> let's see how it goes um yeah, so I'm here in Canberra, in the capital city of Australia. I just finished my PhD um, in December. I graduated in December last year, and since then I've been doing a bit of part-time work at the Australian National University. I set up a, a small consultancy, as you mentioned, um, helping people right. editing and uh, revising their English language publications before they... Well, their manuscripts before they try to turn them into publications and also doing a bit of um, uh, research work as well on the side. So it's all very uh, kind of fluid and somewhat unstable, but it's yeah, got, sure. it's kind of exciting and yeah, it's nice being your own boss and just being able to set your own timetable. Yeah. What was your PhD about? I don't know if I asked you. Oh, yeah. What I, was the topic? Um Essentially, uh, the, the title of my PhD is Spiritual Revolution, A Cultural History mm. of New Age Religion in Taiwan. Uh, so okay. uh, essentially, I've got a history PhD looking at a period of modern history in Taiwan on what we call in English the New Age, which um, mm -hmm. I, I guess for the for listeners who aren't so familiar, it's a fairly uh, broad category of um, individual uh, individual based commercially disseminated spiritual practices that has a fairly long history but if we want to really look at uh, the contemporary new age it's it's kind of like a, a post hippie phenomenon mm -hmm. um, seven, right. 70s and 80s and so I was my th in my thesis I chose the two main authors and translators who, who brought these teachings into Taiwan and mm -hmm. um, looked at their work uh, basically ever since they started writing before they even were really looking at religious matters. Both One of the, the figures in my thesis was a, a movie star and so mm -hmm. it's kind of a, a somewhat... Was this, was this Terry Hu? Terry Hu, yeah. Uh, Hu Yin Mo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she was a really... Uh, popular star in in Taiwan and I guess um, overseas Chinese communities in the 70s and the early 80s and she was also married to uh, Li Ao who is a famous right he's like uh, a lit literary critic or yeah literary kind of academic uh, kind of academic but famous for being a critique I guess yeah also had a go at politics as well at one stage yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. they were only married for three months or so um, okay. <laughs> but it's, it's one of these things that really continues to define her in a lot of media discourse. People, I mean, mm. Lee Al, he just passed away a few months ago. And yeah, uh, I remember. there's been a real spike in um, sort of interest about their relationship, which was nearly mm. 40 years ago. Um, so, right. yeah, Terry Hu was one of the figures I looked at. The other is uh, Wang Jiqing, also known as mm, CC. I don't know this. C.C. Wang, and she's a little right. bit older um, and trained as an architect, 
and her ex-husband was actually the architect of uh, Taipei 101, mm -hmm. wow. um, right. uh, Li, Li Zhu Yuan. So she um, kind of has a, an interesting uh, family background as well. And, and so both of these women were setting themselves up as conduits between Taiwan um, and the West, particularly America. And they mm -hmm. uh, wrote a fair bit about their own experiences living in America, where they, they lived at various stages. And um, in her films, Terry Hu often appeared as, like her character would be someone who'd lived overseas, whether it's America, Italy or uh, Germany. Like there's that so like a like a returnee, like a Taiwanese returnee from yeah, the West. Sort of. I mean, we we wouldn't say Taiwanese; we'd say Chinese because it's going back to that period of uh, Taiwan's history oh, right. where it was Taiwan as China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's there's a great movie where she lives with her father. I think it's in Rome, and they, they run a Chinese mm. restaurant and some other. Chinese guy from Taiwan comes to Rome and he wants to be an opera star and they fall in love. And oh, wow, that, that's fascinating. So this was from the 70s, like during the 70s? Yeah. Or even earlier or, 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 or later? Well, she started in the early 70s and Wang Jiqing mm -hmm. would be in the uh, late 60s. Um, okay, that's the, pretty early. The first book that she translated was The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, which is... Mm -hmm. a fairly yeah. uh, well-known book around the world. And mm -hmm. um, uh, Terry, Terry Hu, besides being a, a movie star, she was also involved with the campus folk music movement, yeah. Yeah. which um, was, was fairly big and uh, in the 70s. And uh, just a few years ago, there was a series of nostalgia concerts around Taiwan uh, with the old musicians getting together. So she wasn't much mm -hmm. of a, a musician, but she was certainly part of the scene. And... Um, Right. Really sort of um, existing as somebody who's got one foot in the Chinese world and one foot in the American world. Uh, you kindly gave me uh, one of your, I think, articles that was published by uh, Academia Sinica. Yeah, that yeah. That, that was published in a book yeah. um, that was about Taiwan and China. Uh, for the PhD, okay. I did just focus on Taiwan. Initially, I was going mm -hmm. to have a slightly different topic where I was going to do try to do some sort of cross-straits comparison, but that just ended right. up being unfeasible uh, for a number of reasons. Cost, for, right. for starters, trying to do mm -hmm. field work in two places. But I um, ended up turning that research into a, a journal article, and right. oh, a book chapter, sorry. Um, yeah. And I, I've been going to China a few times over the last year and a half and, and doing a little bit of uh, research there on, I guess it's, it's hard to call it religion, but using that Western definition or, or understanding of what religion is but sort of spiritual matters and the intersection of mm -hmm. um, communism and uh, self-help and capitalism and Chinese nationalism so trying to kind of look, look at how um, religious ideas can be um, developed and circulate in China in contemporary China in a way that isn't easily identified as being religious if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, because I, I read this uh, essay, it was super interesting. I didn't know, that. that's why I knew uh, Terry Hu, otherwise I wouldn't have known about her. Yeah. Uh, but um, it was really fascinating to me how the how she um, kind of linked together many things of Taiwan's recent past through New Age. I mean, the Campos Folk Movement and the KMT era, like cultural politics of that era. And uh, and China, like the relationship between Taiwan and China, it was it was uh, it was very interesting to uh, kind of grapple with these things. And it was also interesting how she she basically translated or contributed to the translation of this repertoire of New Age uh, thought uh, from the U.S. from from the West, let's say broadly speaking, into Taiwan. So I'm I'm sure this is a this was a very different context than today's Chinese context. Uh, I mean, let alone the past Chinese context where it was probably impossible to just think about translating a New Age book uh, and publish it in China. But today it's probably possible, but it's not. Uh, I'm sure it's fraught with many tensions because of, you know, the CCP's policy on religion. That is produced, uh, it must be pretty harsh on, on things that might be identified as cults or sects, right? So I imagine... Yeah. I mean, to, to take it a little bit further, after Terry Hu, yeah. there's a new figure I've been looking at called Tiffany Chang, uh, mm -hmm. Jiang Defen, 
She's a uh, very popular author in, in China now, but she grew up in Taiwan and she lived in America for okay. a while. And in, she was a, a newsreader in Taipei uh, in the martial law era. She married a fighter pilot who defected from China um, to Taiwan right. in, the, in the 80s. And she's been living in Beijing for 20 years. And she's a, a, okay. a massively popular author. Her books have sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And she's you know, influenced by Eckhart Tolle, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called The Power of Now that's been very popular and, and she has you know, various positive Yeah, oh, okay. she, she, and, and she has a lot of positive psychology ideas. And it's, it's really interesting looking at her to get a sense of how you can be, uh, for want of a better word, a, a new age style figure in contemporary China and get away with it. And one of the mm -hmm. things, you know, she, she's not trying to organize any style sort of group. She's, right. uh, her, ta her target audience is professional women who have mm -hmm. to deal with all the challenges that um, are involved with that, careers, family, um, you know, personal emotions. And she also doesn't have any sort of political um, or kind of overt political messages in her, her writing, which um, really, I think, keeps it off the political, um, the, the radar of any sort of authorities who might be looking for something uh, controversial. So she, she's quite astute in that in that way, um, putting these ideas together in, in what is essentially a fairly bland or banal fashion, but it resonates mm -hmm. with with readers in um, urban China. And she's made a, I don't know, surprising, had a pretty good career over the last um, 10 years or so, writing primarily, initially she started writing novels where she had people sort of going on spiritual journeys. And since mm -hmm. then she's now doing uh, various sorts of, I don't know, using WeChat a lot as well to just right. put articles yeah, yeah. out there. Right. Um, but yeah, so, oh yeah, I guess I, I was just yeah trying to get to the point that the, um, the, the world, certainly Taiwan now in, in 2018 or over the last 10 years is really um, quite different to what was happening in the early 70s when Terry Hu was mm -hmm. in the, the folk music movement. So when we look at religion in Taiwan, it's, it's quite tempting to say 1987 is this big line in the sand when martial law was lifted. So right. after, after martial law, civil society, civil society blossoms and all sorts of religion and publications um, take off and there wasn't much happening beforehand. But in my thesis, I was really interested in what was happening before 1987 and how these sorts mm -hmm. of ideas were circulating and how people were dealing with them. And you know, looking at the, the cultural uh, impact or influence of the USA at that time and how mm -hmm. um, particularly in the 60s and the 70s when they still had diplomatic relations, the extent to which young people in Taiwan were uh, abs absorbing American music, American films, American uh, literature and kind of making some sort of you know, hybridized uh, Chinese-American uh, worldview which I think comes out in, in the, the writings of these women, which is something we don't get in China, maybe at the moment. It's a bit more on a, on a mainstream level, not quite as um, kind of hybridized in that sense. Right. So I was thinking when you do the comparison between um, Taiwan, especially how the usual narrative, especially in, uh, I mean, I took uh, Taiwanese studies courses when I was undergraduate in Australia. Oh, yeah. Cool. They, a lot of the, these courses people tell you is, well, it's the 80s, not 87, and when the martial law, just like you said, when the martial law lifted, everything just blossomed. Everything that is culture, that is, that's related to freedom of thought, religion. But before that, there was like, almost like a desert of nothing. Um, so, I mean, obviously, that's not true. Uh, a lot of things, I mean, are going on. And going back to the point that when you compare like uh, the religious uh, religions in China today and uh, they're in Taiwan, I think there's a part of, um, I think in Taiwan in a sense that almost like a time capsule that religion does have a cultural heritage. Um, yeah. Like in your case, it's probably different because you're talking about new age religion because of that's uh, import um, mostly from the US. Um, but in China... Yeah. 
I think, I mean, especially contemporarily, religion almost feel like、um, a reaction towards the traumatic past of communism, in a sense that that's that's. That's how sort of I interpreted a lot of people's.、Um, there, there's lots of religions in China today. I mean, not just like really particular cult or anything, but more a general attitude or desire towards a religion. It's almost like if you have a religious belief or being practicing some form of religion consistently, then you are civilized. So it is almost part of that、um, discourses of being civilized people and. Uh, rather than like someone who is like sort of brainwashed by communism, not to think about, don't have religion, don't have a moral standard,、mm. and the people would assume that religion help people to raise their moral standard. It's almost like what religion does play, and people popularly believe that、um, religion does play、um, a civilizing role. Whether that's true or not, that's well, obviously up for debate. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that's that's a really good point, particularly about the Cultural Revolution and、uh, so-called traditional culture in China and its its effect. And of course, there was no Cultural Revolution in Taiwan. Instead, they had the Chinese Cultural Renaissance movement, the Zhonghua Wenhua Fuxing Yundong, which I've written a, a paper about as well. I need to do a bit more work on it. But、um, what you know, in terms of the these New Age women.、Um, One of the things I think they really identified with this, the New Age teachings, is that it was a fresh way of trying to understand ideas from Chinese religions. So, for instance, they thought that American、mm-hmm. New Agers had a better understanding of Buddhism and could express it more in a way that's more appropriate for modern life than Chinese or, or, or Buddhist teachers in Taiwan could. And likewise.、Um, You know, they they, I think, as you say, the Cultural Revolution is this big event looming in the history of religion in China. In Taiwan, I think one of the attractions of the New Age was that it helped people negotiate some of the ideas around identity. In the sense that the New Age is often represented as this global community. There's no borders.、Mm. It's it's a it's a sort of you know this community of belonging that anyone can join. And when you're growing up in Taiwan, you're you're probably born in Taiwan or migrated there、um, when you were young from China. In in the case of Terry Hu and C C Wang, you're you're told that Taiwan is China, but it's obviously not the P R C. Um, and、no. then you, you sort of really got this、um, kind of、uh, how would you say a sort of a disconnect. You, you don't know are you are you Chinese? Are you Taiwanese? Are you American? And by participating in the New Age, it was a way for them to sort of solve this identity、um, mm-hmm. issue. Which you know in, in Taiwan, identity studies is a or in, in Taiwan studies, writing about identity is a is a massive、uh, topic that. A lot of people have written、yeah. very important things about, and so for me, this was a really interesting way of engaging with that topic. I, I imagine. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting how the historical context of both China and Taiwan have some strange parallels, but also some divergences over time. So you have, you know, the martial law and the Cultural Revolution, Cultural Renaissance, KMT, continuity. My, my sense being in Taiwan is that religiosity, as Dino said, has. Has always been a part of、um, everyday life and has never been really repressed. Whereas in China, of course, you have you know decades of uh, uh, repression of religion, organized religion, and the in- inclusion of organized religion into the you know over under the oversight of the Communist Party. So I think it's you know the comparison has so many interesting things to talk about. Maybe the maybe one thing I'm、um, that really strikes me、um, in Taiwan, I've noticed a lot of.、Uh, New Age religion has a lot of visibility in public spaces.、Uh, you see posters of you know these spiritual leaders of you know organizations, or, or they promote TV programs. They do. I think some of them even have like an entire TV station. You, you see them on the streets giving out materials,、oh, yeah. stuff like that. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And and I I guess in China this is different. There, there might be probably just like the 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 author you mentioned who write books that are not explicitly you know proselytizing or trying to organize. Things they're just、uh, and maybe they don't have media channels on television and 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 public outreach, but probably they they do things on WeChat. 
Um, but w another thing that I noticed is that many of them are women. And this seems consistent to what you uh, to what you wrote about Taiwan and to what you were saying about China. So maybe can you can you elaborate on this if you think it has a yeah. connection to the role of the to gender in, in contemporary Taiwanese and Chinese society? Yeah, um, uh, that, that's a it's a really good point. And um, just just before I get into it, I, I will have to say that there has sure. there have been periods of repression of religion mm -hmm. in Taiwan uh, in the post war mm -hmm. era. Um, Chiang Kai-shek had certain ideas about what was sort of orthodox or heterodox. He was a, a Christian oh, yeah, himself. I didn't know that. Okay. And um, so certain, I guess what we can call new religions, some people might call them mm -hmm. cults as well, or in Chinese, Xin Xin Zhongjiao, have been repressed in the pre-1987 period. Uh, but oh, okay. as, you, as you say now, people are handing out all sorts of material on the streets. You've got TV channels and... Um, and in terms of gender, I, I think it's, it's very interesting because one of the, the biggest Buddhist groups in uh, Taiwan is led by a, a female, a nun, uh, yep. Tsuji. Yep. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they, they also have a, a presence in the, in the mainland, um, doing some sorts of uh, education or health projects. And... Right. I think it's 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 very interesting that the the way in in my research that New Age was used by some of these authors, in particular Terry Hu, as a way to uh, overcome the patriarchy. And and she mm -hmm. was, um, for instance, she she used the example of the massacre in Beijing in 1989 as an example of patriarchy of male thought gone rampant and leading to a loss of life and sort of a political crackdown. And she thought mm -hmm. that using like the, the, the yin-yang, um, uh, sort of the symbol from Taoism of the two uh, forces that are mutually connected and, and feed off each other, that there was too much uh, yang and the, 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 the yin of the new age could help temper some of these sorts of aggressive or, or macho tendencies that men have and right. and yeah it's 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 very interesting in that the way they also sort of wrote their work it was they used stories that to me would seem to appeal to a, a female audience uh, or right. examples that uh, about you know difficult husbands or the challenges of being a mother or how you have to care for your family these sorts of roles that often uh, fall on uh, women and um, how the, the new age was a way using these sorts of techniques or practices you could deal with these everyday situations in a more uh, peaceful and enjoyable way. Yeah, would you say that the audience uh, for this kind of works and or the, the people who looked towards these kind of practices um, was also was also gendered in the sense that were more women or has it always been a pretty you know paritary balanced uh, population uh in the field work i've done in taipei i guess over nearly 10 years now or in, in taiwan um i would say it's certainly very much like female centric in terms of the, right. the participants more than three quarters mm -hmm. it depends on the event but wow. def okay. definitely a, a lot of females and there's also a space in which uh, women can become teachers and have their own authority as well which is a um, uh, I think a, a very important factor when we consider the new age in Taiwan how uh, a lot of the translators and teachers mm -hmm. have been uh, women mm -hmm. And um, men get involved to some extent or another, but you know, I go to this New Age bookshop in Taipei near National Taiwan University every time I'm in, in Taipei, mm -hmm. and it's always, always full of, um, primarily filled with women buying various uh, bits and pieces, books, but also you know, tarot cards or crystals or that sort of thing. Right, and is it also a, a kind of, a, is there a division of age in which you know, it is more of the middle-aged women or middle-aged uh, people's thing or, or do our young people in Taiwan also into this? I, I meet um, people <coughs> of, of all ages and I, I think you know because like I said at the start new age is such a broad topic and it can be almost so broad to be sure. meaningless in a sense but we have um, uh, you know some of the, the younger people are, that I've met are into stuff that might be a bit more 
uh, out there, you know, maybe getting into some of the uh, sort of shamanic style practices, maybe with uh, hallucinogenic drugs, whereas older people might be going into things that are just a bit more, maybe less confrontational, uh, or or, Mm -hmm. or perhaps maybe more uh, coat, like uh, appearing to be a bit more in line with so-called traditional Chinese culture using more of a, a Chinese religious vocabulary. Yeah, I, I do like notice like New Age religions. It's quite big amongst uh, young Australians. Like there are a lot of, especially people from the lower classes are quite into New Age um, religions and a lot of them are about spiritual energy like chakra, uh, crystals and um, psychedelic drugs. Um, and I met this um, Taiwanese woman that came to in, came to Australia for I think a working holiday, and she was telling me um, she quite liked to hang out with a lot of these um, New Age religions people. I think it was in Adelaide, and and a lot of it. And I think in a way, according to her, that a lot of these um, New Age religious practices on like young Australians, people who are younger than 25, and they re- I mean, really resonate with t- young Taiwanese people as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon because I think here in Australia, um, you know, Australia is a pretty nice place for weather and, and whatnot, and a lot of young people from all around the world like to come here to do working holidays. And I think our number one uh, number of working holiday people are coming from the UK. But number two is from Taiwan. Uh, it's an incredibly popular destination for young Taiwanese. And it's, it's interesting because they come here for, like, you know, the, the, the narrative that comes out in the media is, you know, you get your degree from a university in Taiwan, you can't find a job, so you come out to Australia and get a job in an abattoir or on a farm, you know, doing work that a lot of people in Australia don't want to do, but you make good money and then you can go back to Taiwan mm. and set up a business or something. So it's really interesting to hear that uh, some of these, these youngsters are coming out to sort of um, go on a bit more of a, a spiritual type journey or experience. And, and that's certainly something that I've, I've come across over the years. And, you know, in Taiwan, you can trace that back to like uh, Sun Mao, uh, I think is a, yeah, yeah, uh, a, a, yeah. a real model for this sort of um, way of traveling in the world and experiencing new experiences that you can't access quite so easily back at home. What struck me about Taiwan uh, in the couple of years I lived there is is how many people I've seen, uh, you know, reading tarots in public spaces. Um, I mean, people I would not uh, think of uh, being into New Age than, uh, you know, suddenly being reading... Uh, Gurdjieff or Osho books and stuff like that. And, and you know, I have to admit that in the beginning, you know, despite, you know, ethnographic training and, and anthropological interests, uh, I, I still had uh, that kind of prejudice that I think it's very common towards New Age, right? You, you see, you're like, oh, this is like, what is this? Like, yeah, lightweight. Random stuff, right? Yeah. Lightweight, whatever. Uh, but, but, you know, the more I, I saw it, the more I started uh, you know, being re- realizing was probably part of something bigger that now that I've read your essay, now I, I can kind of grasp what it is, right? Just all these things are not just people being, you know, oh, I'm into tarots because of this, or I'm into crystals because of that, but it's probably part of a bigger religious sensibility and, and this longer history of New Age in Taiwan that uh, probably uh, had a pretty big role into in popular culture, especially through the connection to uh, campus folk and uh, as you said, this gender, uh, the gendered nature of it. Um, but, but I'm really curious about China. I don't know if Dino had, has observed anything because during my fieldwork there uh, a few years ago by now, I don't remember seeing much uh, of the same practices I've seen in Taiwan. And I don't know if, uh, you know, maybe other generations like uh, middle-aged men or women might uh, be more into this kind of stuff. So I let's let's just talk about I have one interesting observation lately. I don't know if it is a new age thing or Buddhist thing. You know, people like to um, like buy like fishes from the market and then release them in a pond. Uh, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing, right? Like they're called function, right? Like um, um, like, like releasing re- life. Like yeah, like returning them to the nature or something. But and it has caused a lot of controversy lately 
for example, like say you um, release a fish that into a pond that entirely destroy that ecosystem there. <laughs> yeah, you know. Right. Um, um, that that sort of things. Like people just um, obviously doing this because they think, um, say, some family members get sick and they go to some Buddhist temple or whatever or some I don't know, like wherever that tell that told them to do this. So they buy uh, fishes from the fish market or sometimes rabbits depends and then release them. It's a bu- it's a Buddhist concept, right? It is. Or it comes right. From, I yeah. think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it's almost like a generic religious thing to do instead of like mm-hmm. a, a strictly Buddhist thing, I think. Because a lot of people are doing it. I've seen quite a few times, even some of my family members. Right. I was quite, um, I mean, I was telling them, why are you doing this? Like, I mean, if you want to do something good, then do something good. Why? It's, it's almost like, for me, I still don't, you know, why don't quite understand. Um, it's almost like donating to a temple, but you don't actually donating mm. to the temple. I don't know why the people are doing this, and 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 I recently watched a news, um, some news. Um, it was about this Taiwanese uh, monk explaining to people that they should starting, they should stop doing this, like stop the uh, function and stop releasing fish into the nature or something, right. and try to do something good. But he didn't say what exactly the good thing is. So I'm just saying, telling people to generally do good instead of trying to. Um, sort of, it's almost like opportunistically stacking up your luck or something. Like, oh, you have something mm-hmm. uh, you're really unlucky lately, so you, you try to sort of um, try to stack up. So uh, you, you 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 go do this thing, and it would just your life would suddenly get better or something. It, it's just um, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but maybe power can. It's good uh, uh good business for the fish, the guys who are selling fish. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw the same thing in uh, India years ago um, at Varanasi on on the. Yeah, Varanasi is the holy city, and the, I was on a boat on the Ganges yeah. River, and there's all these uh, pilgrims from uh, around India and around the world. Some are Buddhist, some are Hindu, and um, you'd be on a boat, and the the salesman would come out and offer you a, a bag full of fish, in a, a like mm. full, full of water with fish in there, and you buy the bag, open it up, and pour the fish into the Ganges River, which is probably actually worse for their life expect expectancy yeah i mean this is really dead (laughs) yeah yeah um and it's sort of it seemed to me to be a bit token i mean i'm not wanting to make a judgment about how people do their spiritual practice but it's really a a very um commercial sort of transaction if you're trying to generate merit as opposed to you know as this as dino said with the taiwanese monk on the tv telling people to actually do something good um which uh-huh. is sort of, yeah. In in Taiwan, it's it's sort of like the dominant Buddhist theme over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, Buddhism for the human world, uh, Renjen for right. Jiao, which has been um, sort of promoted by various big temples and teachers, and th- this idea mm-hmm. that. You know, the heavenly realm is not something that you should wait for. You can actually create it in this life on earth right now through good deeds and charitable work and um, eating vegetarian or or whatever it might be. So it's possible that that Taiwanese teacher was coming out of that sort of tradition. Yeah, the discourse. Yeah. What I I think it's different that the the practice that Dino mentioned now is more of a probably performative, uh, you know, to just show others that you're doing this or just for, you know, for doing a little action. While things like, um, you know, reading tarots, reading tarots, um, it's more of a relational um, thing, at least as I saw it, you know, of friends getting together and reading each other's tarots and talking about problems is using this kind of practices as a way of, you know, going through something or, mm. or um, you know, generating a, a moment that is not just, you know, talking about our issues, but it's more of a like a spiritual moment of openness about things yeah. which you can experiment. Yeah. Tapping into that, some sort of sense. other energy field or other yeah. source of power or authority that the cards can reveal to them. Yeah, that's not maybe it's not family, it's not your teacher, it's not, you know, organized uh, religion, but it's just yours and you can make it make it up as you go. But I was curious about the the other side of this that is not the, you know, extremely private personal of releasing fishes or, or reading tarots, but the organized 
side of uh, this kind of new age uh, practices because in Taiwan I saw a lot of them a lot of this big massive you know I guess they range I'm not an expert but I guess they range from Buddhist associations that have some new age uh, tint to it mm -hmm. to just you know fully uh, fully new age organizations coming maybe from from the US or, or other uh, countries that establish uh, a place like a branch in Taiwan and I'm curious like first of all I'm curious to know if if, if you have done research into it because I heard a lot of stories you know the, the classical stories of all oh, that you know my friend got into this uh, religious organization and it's really hard to get get him out of there how and it's, and it's terrible and you know it's brainwashing yeah. her um, and and I imagine that this is a, a Taiwanese specifically Taiwanese thing uh, because in China these organizations would be um, illegal or, or persecuted so I'm, I'm just curious if you have any observation about this yeah yeah it's um i think it's just a real factor of society in in taiwan that sooner or later someone you know is going to get involved with uh some yeah. sort of group that their family and friends don't understand um you see it in right. <laughs> in movies a lot it's like oh you know the the edward yang movie ee -E, uh, a one and a two yeah uh, there's just like this throwaway line where one of the characters has sort of you know been going up to the mountains to spend time with a a teacher up there and everyone sort of rolls their eyes a bit about it i think mm. you know um it's 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 hard to say hard to generalize but if you're looking at stuff that's a bit more strictly new age um not the the big buddhist groups but done on a workshop basis um on weekends or after work or something like that my first comment right. is it's incredibly expensive so for me doing mm. this sort of field work um <laughs> yeah, I had to be fairly strategic because it burns a hole in your pocket pretty quickly when you start forking out, you know, a few thousand new Taiwan dollars for this, a few thousand for that. And right. before you wow. know it, okay. you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really uh, expensive. So that's this um, as opposed to some of the more popular Buddhist groups that I think can, you know, run more on donations. So people from lower socioeconomic class um, can, can participate more easily, whereas the cost, I think, is, is a massive uh, sort of gateway to get into new age stuff. Like even to buy a set of tarot cards, it's, it's generally not that cheap. Uh, most of them, right. most of them yeah. are imported from, from somewhere or other. And... Yeah, like there was, there was a, a kind of a cult crisis in Taiwan in 1997. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Song, Song Chi Li, the... Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, so... The, the weird, weird photos guy. Yeah, who, who does all these um, sort of photoshopped, uh, manually yeah, photoshopped... Yeah, yeah, I, lo I love his it? photos. I think they're, they're great, they're great artworks, but yeah, he's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of his followers felt a bit ripped off and they donated yeah, money to sure. him and there was maybe some investment issues and there were one or two other uh, big teachers at the time in 1997 that really caused this uh, kind of cult crisis and people were, it was not too long after the subway attacks in Tokyo as well so mm -hmm. there was I think a bit of a, a sense in, in Taiwan that oh you know are these groups getting too out of control um, right but yeah I, was there any uh was there any like more regulation or, or was there any crackdown on these or was just a popular disaffection with the cults yeah i think mainly it's been a a, a popular disaffection people get a bit sort of suspicious of, of some of these groups mm -hmm. and and they can be viewed in a negative sense generally speaking um you know the freedom of religion in taiwan is uh is is quite uh open so you know, Scientology have a, a fairly large yeah. church down yeah. down in uh, Kaohsiung, which is is, is quite uh, quite amazing. Um, and there, there's all sorts of other like the uh, the Children of God, I think, who were a fairly mm -hmm. sort of controversial American group in the '70s. Like lots of uh, sex and child abuse and stuff like that. Have a, a small group of followers who I think are mainly American, long-term American expats uh, right. living in um, Danshui. In Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, okay. So once you sort of scratch the surface, you can find all sorts, any, anything is there, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's a really fertile environment for, for if you've got the, the right sort of teaching and, and people, uh, you find the right 
people, you can really go a long way. Yeah, perhaps the next time you do field work, you should be you should do it as a teacher, so you can get some money from people yeah. who do workshops <laughs> instead of you paying them. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It could 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 be a, a better career choice than trying to get an academic yeah, position. <laughs> pra- practice based uh, setting up a, an organization. One of the groups actually that Teachings. comes to mind that's really interesting is um, they're, they're very uh, attractive to foreigners. And my wife mm-hmm. inadvertently got involved with them. Not too long after we moved to Taiwan for the first time, she'd started teaching English. And she saw a poster saying, are you an English teacher? Do you want to learn how to teach English better? Come along to our session. Mm-hmm. And so she, she came along and she learned a bit Which about Which one English. is this? Which group uh, is this? Uh, I, they, they've changed their name a few times. Uh, they've okay. got a, a, a little center near Thai Power Building Station. And it's uh, run by this Taiwanese guy who claims to be a Tibetan Buddhist Lama from two different traditions. And okay. they've, um, you know, you, you talk to a lot of uh, sort of European or Americans in Taipei, they've, someone knows someone or they themselves have been had a, had an encounter with this group over the, the years um, right. often not not particularly pleasant but you know some people get a lot out of it so you know but it's 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 interesting how it's a um, once again one of these things some people think it's great some people have yeah, incredibly sure. negative opinions of these sorts of teachers and the way they might take advantage of people yeah is it because this group seeks out foreigners to like teach english or, or is it just a gateway to try to get them to participate yeah i think trying to find the english teachers is a gateway to get people to come along to the tai chi session to the meditation session right. and then to come okay. along and learn about some more buddhist ideas and you know eventually you're, you're going there five six days a week all your friends are in the group it's sort of taken over your life and um mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, uh i've heard some, some interesting stories uh certainly from from years gone past i don't know if the group is still going right now they, they were calling themselves the east west culture group at, at one stage oh yeah yeah okay i think i heard of this or at least i, I read the name somewhere because i find it so <laughs> yeah they, they organize hikes yeah. in the mountains and you know okay nice yeah i like think that. one of the main uh one of the main complaints i heard of people about other people joining this kind of organization is also related to the to the issue of money um whereas you know people are not really concerned if if you decide to join a buddhist organization or to practice whatever you want but uh you know in society it becomes a a way of judging other people saying you know he's into that and he's you know he's been brainwashed and now he's putting all his money into this uh you know donating money this organization or working for free for this like the incredible working hours uh just putting so much work in this so that's the kind of stigma that gets attached to, uh, I, I guess, religiosity or, or New Age uh, broadly in Taiwan. That's what a uh, just just a little like few observations. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on there. Um, and you know, you can't escape money. Ta- right. Taiwan is an incredibly capitalist place. Everybody's trying to make money um, and looking to spend their money in you know through kind of creative consumerism, creating these right. lifestyles through you know the clothes you buy or where you go on holidays or working holidays or um, and I think a lot of the time some of these spiritual practices can easily become another form of um, consumerism that, that you can right. use to, to, to demonstrate to your, the community around you just you know, how, how global you are or how cosmopolitan or how sort of spiritual you might be. That's partly like, oh, well, it's quite related to the point I said earlier that, that I felt like this is sort of a similar point if even applies in China that religion is a fashion now, like in a sense that people from the upper classes um, or middle, middle upper, uh, upper middle classes would love to get themselves associated with some sort of religious practice. And that obviously helped them to claim a sort of a superior status among their peers. It doesn't, well, it, there's the various kinds of, um, well, how they claim that superiority, but there's a similar point that uh, religion is definitely related to class status. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's right. Um, uh, I, I presume you're sort of referring to Buddhism here mainly, as a, as opposed to perhaps Islam, uh, which obviously is, yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, maybe um, I, I get a sense this is a, a very sort of it, Buddhism can provide a set of aspirations. 
that people can use to in contemporary China to try to navigate some of the challenges of the socialist market economy and all those you know, cha- challenges. Way, people, yeah, in a way, people almost see that ACEism, like a lot of the upper class people I've talked to, they almost see ACEism as a disease, that you are a moral, a moral being that, that come out of the horrors of communism. Now you try to sort of purify yourself with that whatever religious belief that is, and usually Buddhism. That... It's quite common among the um, diasporas in Australia as well. A lot of um, um, middle-aged Chinese migrants in Melbourne, for example, they regularly go to... Some of them are Christians. They sort of converted later in their life after Mm. they arrived in Australia. Sure, yeah. And and a lot of them are also Buddhist. And obviously early in their life, they're not religious at all. Most of them, the only thing they cared about was money. And after they sort of started living a more stable, rich migrant life, they started to practice religion. And um, it's, it's a very common theme in the migrant life now, I think. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting how you're talking about the Chinese migrants in, in Melbourne. And I guess you, you probably have similar situations in other uh, ethnic Chinese communities around the world, how the sort of opportunities to explore you know, Chinese religions that, that we have here in Australia, let's say, is, is quite different to the way you might do it in China. Uh, yeah, obviously. In, yeah, with the, the, the temples that are available uh, and um, the way you can circulate texts or information or um, your ability to gather in public and, and practice in, in one way or another. And into to that, I think it's, it's interesting to consider Christianity or, or Catholicism as uh, Chinese migrants might encounter that in the West. And you know, it's not unusual for me to meet uh, young uh, people from China or Taiwan who've come to Australia and... Um, you know, really got into Christianity as a, a new way of living in a new country. And right, yeah. It's, it's a very, um, how they take this back to China is, is interesting. You know, some will, will go back and become preachers or um, you're involved in a church or others might just sort of, you know, leave it as a, oh, that's what I did when I was in Australia. You know, I, I went to church and believed in God, but, mm. you know, now... Back in back in China, yeah. get back so, to business. So in a way, it's very similar to how New Age, uh, you know, going back to to Terry Hu and your uh, and your writing, it's it's kind of sounds similar to how New Age got translated into Taiwan, right? It's just uh, experiences abroad and then the will to you know disseminate it and share it. Yeah. In context. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Like for Terry Hu and uh, C.C. Wang going to America, mm-hmm. you know, it. Terry Hu went there to study and to um, actually she sort of was meant to marry a guy there and neither of that worked out and she ended up becoming a hippie basically. That's how she describes it. C.C. Wang went to America to um, accompany her husband who was doing postgrad study and she ultimately raised a family there. So you've kind of got this, this established narrative of going to America to study um, maybe make some money through business but they right. sub- subverted that by uh, really, you know, having some personal crises, but also using that to as a, a way to explore the um, basic sort of spiritual uh, practices or, or technologies of the self that you have available in a place like America, and taking them back as a as an export to Taiwan and having a. Um, so for me, that was really interesting to see the way they that the challenges of life as a migrant in the West and how that drew them to seek spiritual solutions of the type that were available there in the West. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's fascinating how, at least at that time, this was articulated with music in a way that probably is not anymore. But, you know, this, uh, this idea, like having this uh, few coffee, like cafes popping up, uh, in Taipei as this sites of, uh, you know, cultural f- fermentation and production. And mm. there was, you know, campus folk music and new age religion and probably like other things like uh, foreign literature and maybe movies. I don't know, but like, yeah, it was yeah. a place for young, young people to just, uh, digest and, and try to make their own version of this culture. Yeah. Experiment was definitely a, a big thing 
it sort of became a, a safe place where people could, as long as they weren't challenging the authority of the KMT government, they could really sample ideas from abroad and, and meet people from abroad and, and, and try to create new sorts of um, understandings. Yeah, whereas today music, uh, I mean, I guess you would, you know, associate New Age religion with New Age music. Like there is an entire genre called like that. So yeah, like, yeah. So there, there's been, you know, kind of a lock-in of music and religion into the same uh, space. Um, can I ask about uh, Falun Gong? So maybe we can get our podcast banned in China. That's uh, Let's go um, for it. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all right. But probably, um, I've seen it a lot in Taiwan, of course, right? It's yeah. in all the big tourist spots and even... Um, like I went to the Chiang Kai-shek Statue Park. It's really far, like out of Taipei, and they're oh, the yeah, Falun Gong yeah. there. Yep. Yeah, yep. you know the Falun Gong were like they're doing a, a like a like they were sitting there and proselytizing as usual. So is that usually considered? Is it part of the New Age uh, broadly, the New Age domain you're you're looking at, or is it something <clears throat> else? It's um, a little bit different. Yeah. Um, okay. That, that there's a lot of ideas that cross over, but I guess when we sort of you know get academic about these matters and try to uh, apply some sort of um, typology i would consider right. the a group like uh, falun gong to be a new religious movement in that there's, there's okay. a fairly well-defined group there's a, a specified set of teachings there's a, a leader that is um, recognized by people within the group as having some sort of um, authority Whereas new, mm -hmm. age, new Age tends to be a lot more um, loose in that you, right. you, you don't really join a group. You might go to a workshop or read a book, but six months later you might be into something totally different and it all is much more reactive to your situation at the time. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, but Falun Gong seems to be very well established there in uh, Taiwan, like catching yeah. a bus around the countryside, you see the posters mm -hmm. everywhere, particularly if you're yeah. any, any, anywhere near where Chinese tourists are going to be going. And Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's um, quite fascinating how it's this sort of um, protest movement that is also trying to out-Chinese China mm -hmm. in, in the, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, get the, uh, you know, it, it's sort of representing itself as some sort of um, protector of Chinese culture, which they do through their uh, performances that you see coming traveling around the world every year. Is it uh, Shen Yin or something, right? Uh, Shen, Shen Yin. Shen Yin, yes. Like, I think they, they toured around Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I think they were playing in uh, like places like Ballarat and Bendigo. It's Probably, you know, yeah. They, they, I mean, they really get around. Yeah, I mean, there's one interesting about Falun Gong in Australia is I... I mean, I've mostly really, uh, well, ignored this sort of... I mean, I've seen them everywhere and stuff. I've just mostly ignored them. I've never thought that they would relate it to most people's lives. And, and there was one day I was uh, visiting uh, my friend's family, who are Chinese migrants, being in Australia for, say, at the time, I think five years. None of them speak, uh, speak English, so they can't... Well, at the time, I think it was about 2010, and there was... I mean, they could uh, basically... Have, they have some Chinese stations at the time. I think they can still watch Chinese TV. But the main source of Chinese, especially local Chinese news, was the Falun Gong newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So, so in, interestingly, what happens that they are local Chinese papers. I mean, some of them have really long history. It goes back to the gold rush. But they have de uh, gradually deteriorated so much that they have almost no news contents. They're just all ads. So people mm. stop reading them because they're totally trash. So the only newspaper that actually provides, um, well, before WeChat, this is before WeChat. Yeah. Right. That provides people with like print paper with decent news articles about local Australian politics was the Falun Gong paper. That, that's yeah. up yeah. until like, um, say, um, 2012 or something, I mean, 2014 or that's up to the point when there were a lot of WeChat stuff going on now people just read stuff on WeChat there's so many Chinese news about Australian politics but before then it, it was uh, the Falun Gong paper um, a lot of people read the paper do understand the religious uh, undertone a lot of them just ignore it because well they still want to know the local news yeah right yeah. that's interesting I, I heard a story secondhand just earlier this week um, 
uh, a friend was telling me about some friends of hers, Chinese, living in Australia, who uh, went back to China. Uh, and they, had, they were taking some products, I don't know, like they bought some glasses or something here in Australia, and they wrapped them up in the uh, Chinese, in the, the, the Falun Gong newspaper, the Epoch Times. And when they went through customs in China, the, they got in, they were suspicious because the, Big the, trouble. the guards saw them bringing this <laughs> Falun Gong propaganda into, um, into China. And they were unaware that that was the case. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's quite interesting. Like there's one of the things that Falun Gong used to do in China was write um, on banknotes. So once again, this is pre right, we, yeah, WeChat. Yeah. They, they would write messages like Falun Dafa Hal, that sort of thing. You know, Falun Gong. Yeah, is I've good. seen that. I've seen that as a kid, like when I was ten years old. I've yeah. seen those kind of notes. So it's sort of a way of circulating their message and, and, and proselytizing, uh, preaching. And if people are using these Epoch Times newspapers to wrap up their stuff when they take it back to China, it's also another sort of uh, sneaky way of getting your message into China. Yeah, sorry, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's quite I mean, interesting, uh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I think this is one of the things that really interests me about new religious movements, um, is particularly these bigger ones like Falun Gong, is how they use media. Um, they, they create their newspapers or their uh, TV channels in Taiwan um, or, yeah. or other sorts of online um, uh, media to and, and use that as a way to connect with uh, audiences. and. It's really very. Um, I I feel like it's a it's an understudied field in Taiwan. Just looking at this religious media and how um, how influential it is or is not, and how people can engage with it, and also how it sort of spurs them to be creative, the, the religious groups to be creative with their, um, their the way they get their message out. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. I I mean, of course, because my interest is, you know, revolves around digital media in, in China and Taiwan. So I was about to ask you about this. Um, you know, after we all we'll talked about things pre WeChat, right? But now we are in the post WeChat and post, you know, Line and Facebook times. So I was wondering, besides new religions, right? We made this distinction between new age and new religions. I was curious about, you know, new age and digital media, because I've seen uh, of course, these are individual practices or, you know, small, small scale practices between maybe friends and colleagues. So, of course, uh, you would expect to see them also practiced through digital media. And I, you know, I've seen um, I've seen, for example, friends doing um, offering tarot readings through Facebook or, or selling like personalized crystals uh, online Sometimes I get these ads, um, this like advertisement online that tells me, you know, it'll like about get your horoscope or your zodiac sign read and stuff like that. So I was wondering if you noticed or if you've seen some some interesting practice that has been enabled by digital media that is connected to like this new age forms of religiosity or practice. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is such a amazing place to start doing research and one of my struggles is not really being a very effective digital ethnographer is trying to keep mm. track of what what happens online and i'm sure you right, know, right, right, sure, yeah. all, all you guys have the same sort of problem um uh so i, I did some i wrote a, a chapter about this group that i started my phd and i kind of stopped doing a phd on them because there just wasn't enough for a thesis, mm. there was enough for a book chapter, and they're called uh, Huang Ting Chan, like um, Huang, yellow, Ting, meaning like yeah. place, place, and Chan, like right. Zen. And um, they, they were very online using, uh, this is sort of 20, 2010, 2012, when I did most of the research. Right. And uh, what was really interesting about them was not just how they used, you know, put videos on YouTube or um, were also using Chinese social media, various platforms to put their lectures and that sort of thing, but it was how they actually started using digital media in their their meditation sessions and oh, how, right. wow. uh, you know, you'd, you'd be sitting there and, uh, you know, doing some sort of meditation practice and that they'd put on like a, a clip from Harry Potter and you're like, what is my emotional response to <laughs> Harry Potter? And then they had one from this Will Smith movie, uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, where Will Smith is a golf caddy, I think, or something like that. And you, you had, what's your emotional response to that? What's your emotional wow. response to listening to this uh, uh, Wang Fei 
song. And also then they'd do these sharing sessions where you would be recorded with a digital video camera and sometimes they put these clips online and it was really interesting looking at these clips of people uh, who'd been videoed sort of uh, testifying or, or sharing their experiences mm. about these spiritual practices how being filmed seemed to influence the the sort of the way they they performed and the way yeah, the sure. language <clears throat> or the, the 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 symbols or the the body language they used to express these sorts of changes that they'd experienced so um that that's one of the things i've sort of picked up on in terms of uh digital media in, in this sense uh it's I, I think it's a really uh ripe sort of place to do more research of these sorts of spiritual spirituality like often in china and taiwan it's called uh shen qin ling like body, mind, spirit, quite, yeah. quite, quite similar to what we have in English. <clears throat> and I don't know, <laughs> hopefully in the future I have a chance to, to go a bit further down this track. Yeah, but this thing you mentioned of, you know, being filmed and the clips being shared, it's, it reminds me of like the, you know, um, the American like mega churches with those like the, the healers and, you, you know, the like people, the people that go into possessed. ecstasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and healing. Those are also like on the power of filming, right? These people are filmed and then they, you know, there's all the performance involved and um, belief. So it seems like a, a pretty common thing to, to have new media enter into the realm of religion to augment these experiences or make it like, like disseminated on, on a larger scale, I guess. But yeah, I, I haven't looked into it. I'm just really curious about uh, I remember in China uh, seeing a bunch of websites where you could light candles for the dead, um, like a kind of, you know, online temples. Mm. And um, I'm sure that Taiwan I think that was after to... the earthquake. I think that I've seen that before. Like the one I saw was just a Buddhist. Yeah, the, the one I saw oh, was just a yeah. Buddhist, uh, like a Buddhist oh, website right. where people could okay. just light candles to the Buddha or to to people who passed away. But I guess yeah, after the the, the earthquake, that was probably a more organized effort. To, yeah, it was more organized. Yeah. Well, I can just make a, yeah. a comment, I guess, while we're talking about yeah, sure, uh, sure, sure. sort of new age stuff online. Um, one of the things I started doing a few years ago was uh, using a blog on Tumblr. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, I guess, a fairly popular, um, mainly image sharing website. And yeah. um, so I sort of ended up with this massive collection of old magazines from the 70s and the 80s that my uh, grandmother-in-law gave to me. I thought, oh, these are really right. cool pictures. Um, I'm going to scan them and put them online. And so I, I've been doing that on and off for years now whenever I've got a bit of spare time and I've got magazines from Taiwan now and various books oh and, cool and so initially my my plan was look I'm just going to put it up here so these images are there and you know sort of like a bit of an archive but the, the mm -hmm. nature of social media is I was also kind of curious to see if they took on a life of their own and if people you know weren't just being a bit of a, a geek about them like me and saying oh this is an interesting bodily practice or you know visionary art or whatever and they're like actually taking these things these pictures uh, or book covers or, or designs or whatever I've put up there and turning it into some sort of uh, way that they can create their own online identity and so it's been interesting for me to see what sort of images have been um, you know, retweeted, I guess, um, or, right. or, or got a lot of interest. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating Tumblr. I followed it, and um, I'm going to put a link in the description of this episode. Yeah, um, I've seen it I, uh, as well, yeah. It's pretty, it's yeah, pretty interesting, I, a lot of images. Yeah, and I've had a similar experience with my Tumblr, um, the, the one that I did during my dissertation, because I the same. I mean, I was collecting images from Chinese social media, and I put it, I just, in the beginning, it was just an archive, because Tumblr is convenient for, you know, tagging pictures and yeah, yeah. having them available but but it's fascinating to see how some of these pictures are then reappropriated by people or they're you know become suddenly extremely popular and then people contact you and they tell you oh wow i saw this image i'm just you know so cool i also i posted it or i created it and so i i think it's a very it's a very good research tool and especially for new age in which you know the the, the imagery the, the visuality of it is uh it's quite striking and diverse yeah. so mm. i never seen you know new age magazines from taiwan so i guess it will be great when you start uploading them yeah yeah i've but, seen like um another template about like the template's name i think is like um japan in the 80s so mm -hmm. what the 
tumblers about or scans of 80s Japanese magazines. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Posters. So it's like, it's very similar to um, your um, Tumblr, but like, the, well, obviously all the magazines are po- about pop music, but right. a lot of aesthetics yeah, are quite, um, obviously with the rise of like stuff like Wave Wave and, and this stuff, stuff are massively shared on Tumblr. Yeah, you've seen yeah. people like um, like thousands of reposts of, of of this sort of posters or, or magazine scans. So yeah, I, I, and I, I found guess that, Tumblr. Yeah, yeah, and it's also a good research tool in the sense that you can use it. Uh, you know, when you do interviews or discussions, you can just pull it up and look. Pe- let people browse through, you know, your archive and see if anything catches their mind, or if you, you know, if you have seen some of those images or what they can tell you about them. Yeah, uh, which I guess it's and, true in your case as well. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm thinking maybe I could do some sort of self-reflective piece on this, like what, yeah, <laughs> where 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 sort of the, the academic becomes the the, the content creator in, inadvertently. Um, right. I, I, I don't know where I could go with it, but it's sort of yeah. Tumblr has this feature where you can click on go into the statistics and it shows you who has retweeted it and like who are the the most popular things. And that for me, it was incredibly fascinating once I started looking at that and seeing who these influential people were online and, and what they were looking for on my blog. And often that was really counterintuitive to what I thought would be popular. Yeah. Because maybe there is a, you know, community of, uh, people into a new age on tumblr or maybe people that are into graphic design or you know you don't really know who's gonna enjoy your your tumblr yeah blog. as as dino says i think there's also a bit of a vaporwave crossover there as oh, well oh yeah yeah yeah. okay interesting yeah because a lot of the 80s magazines they have that sort of general aesthetic people are looking for mostly vaporwave blogs so they sort of repost it so when they yeah, repost yeah. this sort of stuff, they have a collection of everything, right? That everything that has so, that sort of aesthetics, that includes maybe uh, new age magazines in Taiwan as well as uh, some pop magazines in Japan. They obviously, well, not obviously, they probably can't read them, but the the pictures and the sort of the design that they are appealing to them. Yeah, yeah it's 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 a really sort of uh, rich set of imagery that I think some of this this art certainly from Taiwan in the in the 80s is, it's very to me seems quite you know uh, over the top they've, they've got a lot of um, ideas going on and it's it's really good to see how it, it has a second life now through something like Tumblr I'm gonna link to your essay perhaps and a few websites uh, with your work and stuff that we mentioned so the listeners can uh, can go and consult these materials and uh, we will see you next. Uh, month or whenever we record the next episode if you have any suggestion or you want to be on the podcast you can uh, just get in touch and uh we'll see our twitter if, uh, we yeah you a... can follow us on twitter at, at uh, cwgi boys um that's our twitter handle so uh feel free to get in touch and um we'll see you next time cheers all right thanks